Many of you, like my story, you may have a story where you grew up in church, and my parents were a pastor, so that meant I was the first to get to church and last to leave. So thankful for the bringing that I shared and for what God did in and through my story. But towards the end of my high school years and early college years, I had an identity crisis because I had really built my whole sense of identity based on my obedience to God. I really had convinced myself that what I did for God made me who I was to God, that it was actually my level of obedience to God that determined my identity in Him. So towards the end of high school and early college years, when I began to do things that I thought I would never do, say things that I thought I would never say, I imagined God as if he was on a swivel chair, and in that moment, he turned the chair around, and all I saw was his back. Wow, I'm out of the favor, out of the presence, out of the love of God. And when you view God that way, you immediately feel hopeless, despair. You feel like God is distant. He's afar from you. And I lived in that state of mind for several years, at least two to three years. On the outside, it looked normal, and I was saying the right words and still attending church, but on the inside, I was deconstructing what I thought about God and even what I believed about Him and components of my faith. I was in an identity crisis, and I didn't think that Christianity was for me. And then, by the sheer grace of God, I stumbled upon this letter called Ephesians that we're going to be jumping into today, Ephesians. And it was, I remember like it was yesterday, I was in my apartment about 11.30 at night, and I picked up my Bible to start reading. To be honest, I was just hoping to fall asleep. I know none of you ever do that, (laughs) but in your yearly plan when you get to Leviticus, you may be tempted to do that. So I picked up my Bible thinking, hey, I just want to fall asleep, so I'm going to start reading. Well, I turned to Ephesians 1 and started, and by the first verse of Ephesians 1, my soul was gripped. I couldn't put it down, so I read all the way through the six chapters and then reread it, and especially chapters one through three, I began to ask myself, is this true? Is this real? Because it sounds too good to be true. Good grace, be this radical, this amazing. Amen. And from 11.30 p.m. to 3.30 a.m., sitting up in my bed in my apartment, the Holy Spirit, through these inspired words, revived my heart to him. And in that moment, everything changed. I came to realize it's actually not my obedience to God that results in my identity in him, but actually that it's the perfect obedience of Jesus that results in my identity. And it is a grace of God that now leads me in my obedience. Realize that I am not who I am based on what I did or do, I am who I am based on what Jesus has already done. And I lived my whole life up to that moment with that order flipped. And it made Christianity exhausting. But in that moment when the order flipped and my identity came first and then my obedience because of the perfect obedience of Jesus, everything changed. It was like a light bulb went off. And all of my I have to's became I get to. All of my religion became a relationship. All of my duty became a delight. All the guilt was transformed into deep gratitude because I believe in that moment, I understood, at least the best in my ability at that time, the gospel of grace, the good news of Jesus 
Christ. Our role today, people today, struggle with questions of identity like I did. Questions of purpose, questions of meaning, questions of transcendence. Who am I? What is life all about? Who am I as a person? Who am I as a student, a husband, a wife, an employer, employee? Who am I as a person? Who am I to be at work? Who am I to be at home? Who am I as a parent? Who am I? And what do I do with the real struggles and challenges around me? Well, over the next 13 weeks, we're going to dive into this book called Ephesians that the Apostle Paul writes about 60 AD, just less than 30 years since Jesus ascended into heaven. Paul here in this book writes from God's perspective, not man's. He writes from how God views us and what he has for our lives. And yet, Ephesians deals with the real issues of our world. It deals with the issues of racism and division and immorality and disunity. It speaks to our marriage problems, parenting struggles. It speaks to our work relationships and spiritual warfare that most Americans have concluded doesn't even exist, at least here in America. But it's real. And the Apostle Paul begins to write what some call the climax and the crown of his theology. Because in just six chapters, Paul unfolds the very essence of the Christian faith. The first three chapters of this book are devoted to who God is and who we are in him. It describes the beauty, the wonder of the gospel of Jesus. And the second half, the next three chapters, invite us to live in view of this, to walk in view of this, to act in view of this. The first half are the vertical indicatives of who he is, what he's done, and then it follows with this beautiful invitation of horizontal imperatives of, now this is therefore how you and I, how we live. Now the reason why this book is so powerful is because it'll encourage and challenge us at the same time. It'll illuminate our mind, our understanding, our approach to God. But at the same time, it'll alter our behavior. If you read the Bible and it just makes you think new thoughts, but without changing your behavior, the Bible actually isn't doing its intended work. The book of Ephesians, yes, it encourages us, and yes, it will challenge us to believe differently and to live differently. The reason why this book is so relevant is because ultimately Ephesians is a revelation of who God is. And everything that is relevant about us must be anchored in a revelation of who God is. Our relevance is in the revelation of who he is. So this book, these six chapters will hold us face to face with God Almighty. It'll open our eyes to the grace of God, the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, the mission of God, the plan of God, the people of God, the church of God, and the way of God for our lives. It fixes our vision on him. And I believe you will, like me, realize that I'm actually not the center and the star of my story. It's all him. God's got a design a creative plan, and intentionality, that long before I could say my yes to him, God had been preparing, he had been planning, he had been preparing for me.
Paul, while he writes Ephesians, he is during, it is during his two-year house arrest in Rome. Acts 28 speaks of towards the latter years of Paul's life, he spent two years in a rented house as a prisoner. And though he's a prisoner in chains, he's able to write and he's able to have visitors. Now, what's amazing, and Paul records this in some of his other uh, prison epistles, that even the guards who are in charge of keeping Paul and watching over him come to faith in Christ because they had spent enough time with the apostle Paul to hear the message of Jesus. I mean, talk about a job turnover. You're like, okay, I'm supposed to like persecute and harm this guy, but now I believe what he believes and I'm a Christ follower because of him. How could I now be a prison guard for the apostle Paul? So as he's in this house arrest, visitors come and one of the men that come to visit Paul is by the name of Tychicus. You read about Tychicus at the end of Ephesians. He is someone who is from Ephesus most likely and familiar with the apostle Paul. And Paul has been a pastor at the church in Ephesus for many years. And so he writes this letter and sends it with Tychicus to Ephesus. Now, although this letter is addressed to the Ephesian church, this letter, most scholars believe, was meant to circulate all the way through Asia Minor. It wasn't just for the church in Ephesus. It was for churches anywhere and everywhere. In fact, some of the early manuscripts omit the word Ephesus from verse 1 because it was meant to be a gap that you fill in with whatever town you lived in. This is the only letter that is not so specific about crisis or controversy, but it's general in nature. It opens our eyes to the glorious riches of God's grace that wherever you live, whatever time period you live in, wherever the church of Jesus is, in whatever form, it opens our eyes to the glorious riches of who we are, who God is, and who we are becoming as the church of Jesus Christ. It is for you. So all of the beautiful doctrines, the statements of truth captured in this letter is for you. It's for me. It's not for some elite people. In one time period, it is for all of us who are followers of Jesus. And it is an invitation for those who have yet to give their heart to Christ to follow Jesus in this way. So, verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins by saying this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Paul here begins this letter by identifying who he is. He says, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the word apostle simply means a sent messenger. Now, we did a whole series last, just a few months ago about how we live a sent life because all of us, we are sent people with a message of hope in Jesus Christ. And in the first century, the word apostle also meant an office, a certain group of people like Paul who had a first encounter experience with Jesus. They had met Jesus in such a way that they were given the authority, the power to be a messenger for Jesus and their words were to instruct the church and shape the early church of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'm one of the early apostles sent to the church, sent by Jesus himself. Now when Paul says, I'm an apostle, this is not a statement of arrogance or pride. This is actually, I believe, a statement of gratitude, humility. Because there was a point that before Paul was Paul, Paul was Saul. And before Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul was first an apostle of Judaism. 
And he lived his whole life so zealous, so bent on destroying the church of Jesus. In fact, Paul would write it like this in Acts chapter 22, verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail. Paul would lead crusades, tours of killing, murdering, persecuting Christ followers. So anytime anyone read these words, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, they would have thought, how could God have ever saved Saul, who now is Paul? Because just the name would have brought fear and terror to the Christians who lived in his day. But Acts 9 records how when Paul was on one of his tours of persecution, he encountered the risen Jesus and a massive light surrounded him and he heard the words of Jesus that says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? This is Jesus, why are you persecuting me? Interestingly enough, Paul physically, before the resurrection, had never met Jesus. He had never physically persecuted Jesus, but he had persecuted the church. And Jesus shows how intricately intertwined he is with the church to say, when you persecute the church, you're persecuting me, Paul. Paul saw such a great glory visibly, the light of Jesus that he fell off of his horse literally and fell to his knees. Lord, I'm sorry. He surrendered his life to the beauty, the wonder of God. And in that one moment, Paul experienced a U-turn. His life was drastically changed. His motivations were different. His heart was transformed. And Paul was no longer just going to follow Jesus. He was going to share Jesus at whatever cost. Through shipwrecks and imprisonment and even the cost of his own life, he couldn't deny the Jesus he experienced. He couldn't even explain him, explain him away. Life became much more inconvenient for Paul. But he couldn't deny this Jesus that he had met. Paul was absolutely changed by the presence of Jesus. And this is what Jesus still does to people today. It's what he's done to me and to you. We've all had our own Damascus Road experiences, haven't we? It might have been in my apartment complex for me. It might have been in your hospital bed for you, living room, in your car, maybe on a prison floor. Somewhere, somehow, we recognize the presence of Jesus and we couldn't explain away this personal encounter we had with Jesus. And he became not just a theological fact or a figment of imagination. He became so real, so personal. We saw his grace. We experienced who he is. And we were forever changed. Jesus changes people. He still does it today. Imagine when Paul went to preach as an apostle of Jesus Christ into the early churches that met in homes and under a tree. He would look into the eyes of children whose parents he murdered. In the eyes of family members that he put in prison. Imagine if he felt guilt and shame. Imagine if he felt condemned, felt unworthy. But I think there are two words that when Paul was tempted naturally feel condemnation and guilt that rather what he felt was grace, what he felt was God's peace. And I say this because in verse two, part of his introduction in every epistle, 
is saying, grace to you and peace from our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul begins every single letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I know we often just skip over the introduction. But if Paul begins every single letter like this, I think he meaningfully, intentionally writes these certain words because he's inviting people to experience what he experienced. The grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I experienced such grace that led me to peace. That grace is a source that leads to the outcome of peace. And I'm inviting you through these words, through this letter, to experience grace and peace. The word peace uh, doesn't just mean the cessation of war or trouble or turmoil. This word in its root form means union after separation. It speaks of wholeness, like two broken pieces, two pieces of wood that have now been wedded together as one. All the world, we all want peace. We want this kind of wholeness. We want this kind of peace. But Paul is so clear from the onset to say, we can only experience the outcome of this peace through the grace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have peace apart from God's grace. It's only his forgiveness, his grace, the cross, his mercy, his love for you, his undeserving favor for you. This is the source that leads to this outcome. So if you need peace, if you want peace, Paul says, can I just invite you into the grace and peace that is deeply transformed me. I pray grace and I pray peace. Grace is a source and peace is the outcome. So when Paul was tempted with the onslaught of guilt and shame, in that moment, grace was felt. Peace was felt, the grace of God. It's been said that Paul would have been ushered into heaven with the cheers of those he murdered. That's the grace of God. It's the peace of Almighty God. Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says, it's by the will of God that I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle by God's will. The church didn't choose me. I didn't choose myself. God chose me. It was by his will, by his design, his intentionality. By his will, I have been chosen. Paul would share his testimony like this in the book of Galatians. Chapter one, for you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, that's the U-turn moment. You've got a but when God moment as well. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could not, so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult immediately with anyone. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul saying, you know my story. You know how I used to be zealous to destroy the church to overthrow the church, to come and pass decrees of murder and evil. But God, who had set me apart, who had called me by his grace from my mother's womb, this is the will of God for Paul. 
It's remarkable to think that even before Paul was a murderer, he was set apart by the grace of God. Even while he was the greatest threat and menace to the church, the greatest torment to Christians, he was still set apart, called by grace. There was nothing that Paul could do to disqualify who grace had already airmarked him to be, called him to be, set apart for him to be. As great as his hatred was, God's grace was going to be greater. As deep as his rebellion, his zeal for Judaism was, God's love for him, God's will for him, God's decree over his life was going to be sovereign. And Paul says, God has set me apart. He has called me by the grace of God. You've been set apart. We've been set apart by the grace of Almighty God. And maybe you have been counting yourself out this year. I could never be saved by God. I could never be used by God. I've done too much. I've said too much. I've been away for far too long. But the same grace that set Paul apart, called him by his grace, is available for you. Maybe you have counted other people out. They can never be saved. They've done too much. They've hurt too many people. Maybe they've hurt you too many times. But the same grace available for all, available for you, is available for them. God would allow Paul to go to such an extent of being the greatest threat to the church so that one day he could stand in front of people like you and I who thought we could never be saved and say to them, look at my story. I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst of the worst, but this grace saved me. It forgave me. It gave me a new heart. It gave me a new life. It forever changed who I am. Can I get an amen? amen. It's the power of God's grace is available for you. It's stronger, more stubborn, more resistant than any of our sin. Paul says, I'm an apostle by God's will, by God's grace. This phrase of Paul, I am an apostle by the will of God, invites us to ask this question, who am I by the will of God? Who are you? Who are we by the will of God? What is God's design, his plan from eternity, his intentionality, his setting you apart from your mother's womb? What is God's will for you? Did you know he had a will for you? Before you saw your story, before you saw the unfolding of your life, God saw it. He had a will for who you were going to be. He had a will for your work, for your family, for your relationships, for your singleness. God's got a will for you. And sometimes we're so preoccupied with our will, our culture's will, people's expectations of us, people's opinions of us, that we never pause to ask the question, who am I by the will of God? If you're climbing up a ladder, is it leading against your own will or the will of God? It's a sad day when you reach the top of that ladder and you realize it's been leaning against the wrong wall. Are you leaning against the will of God or your own will? May this be the moment of grace that God opens your eyes to see his will, his call for you, his invitation to himself.
Paul, in this next part of this verse 1, gives a designation of who we are as Christ's followers by the will of God, who every believer is by the will of God. Notice what Paul says in verse 1, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. To the faithful saints in Christ Jesus. In the Greek, it reads, to the saints in Christ, to the saints at Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus. I want to begin with this word, saints. Paul writes to these Christ followers in Ephesus and says, you are saints in Christ Jesus. Now, if you looked up the word saint in a modern dictionary, here's what you'll get. Let's say if you looked it up in Merriam-Webster dictionary, here are the top two definitions of what a saint is. One, officially recognized, especially through canonization, as preeminent for holiness. Number two, one of the spirits of the departed in heaven. So according to modern dictionaries, for you to be a saint, either you have to be dead or you have to be inducted into sainthood by some committee who has measured your preeminence in holiness and determined you're worthy enough to be a saint. That sounds a little unachievable. But the Bible has a very different definition of who a saint is. The Bible, the New Testament actually says that whoever is a believer in Jesus, you are already a saint. Amen. You don't have to wait till you die. You don't have to wait for some approval. You are already a saint. What does that mean? The word saint simply means to be set apart. It's got the imagery of how God would set apart Israel in the Old Testament. He would choose a nation and call them out of the rest of the nations of the world. He would designate that these are my people, my chosen people, my special people for myself. And every Christ follower, the moment they say yes to follow Jesus, they've been set apart, called as a saint. Now, sometimes we think we are a saint because of what we have done. But the definition in the New Testament is we are a saint not because of what we have done. We are a saint because we have been cleansed. We are a saint not because of what we have done. We are a saint because we have been washed. We've been cleansed. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians. Paul gives a list of fleshly, worldly identities that hinder people from inheriting the kingdom of God. And Paul says, some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sometimes we may believe that in the moment of our salvation, when we place our faith in Christ, We were justified, and then it's at some future moment that we're sanctified. But actually, Paul says, the moment you were washed, you were both justified and sanctified by the same Jesus and his spirit. The moment you were justified, you were also sanctified, meaning you were cleansed on the inside. You experienced an inner sanctification. Jesus took all of your filth, all of your sin, all of your past, all of your mistakes and shame, all of your rebellion, all of your actions, and he washed it away. He put it on the cross. He took it all on himself. He became sin, and in exchange, 
He put on you all of his righteousness, all of his beauty, all of his righteousness, perfection. You are immediately sanctified the moment you became a Christ follower. You are not sanctified because of something you do in the future. You are sanctified the moment you are justified. You are a saint on the inside. And as you believe this reality of who you are, this truth of who you are, I'm a saint, I am holy. The holiness you possess on the inside begins to swell up. And the holiness you possess on the inside starts becoming practical in your life. It becomes practical in your mind, in your thoughts, in your affection, in your actions, in your decisions. This holiness must and will grow. It'll begin to swell up inside of you. And because of you're a saint, you realize that you have a power that you didn't have before. You have an identity you could not have achieved and now you no longer have to be obligated to an old nature that no longer exists. You don't have to be controlled by your lust, by your greed, by your anger, by your temperament, by your need for control. No, no, no. You have been made new because all of that has been washed. You are made new. And the holiness we possess become practical. And that's the ongoing work of sanctification from deep within. What we already possess, who we already are, becomes evident in our actions and thoughts. So hear me, Christian. You are not a sinner. You are a saint. Now, do you sin? Most likely, because we all do. Not because we're living in the flesh, but the flesh is living in us. We're living in Christ. But there is the annoying flesh that'll whisper to you. But don't you ever for a moment let the enemy convince you that you are anything less than a saint. But let the Spirit of God every day on your best day or on your worst day remind you that you have already been washed, already been cleansed, and already declared a saint of God. And this identity will control our behavior. It'll change us from the inside out because the same spirit that justified and sanctified us at the moment of our salvation is still with us and he continues to change. He continues to transform us by the power of the spirit of God. Maybe you're thinking, well, I don't really feel like a saint. And this week I did some things that saints shouldn't do. So maybe I'm not a Christian. That's what the enemy will try to get you to go down the route and believe, well, see, you're not acting like a saint, so you aren't a Christian. I think this next adjective from Paul it helps us in that struggle we may feel inside. Paul then says, to the faithful saints, saints who are faithful, faithful saints in Christ Jesus. When we think of the word faithful, we often define the word faithful by words like fidelity, endurance, perseverance, loyalty. Those are right definitions and meanings for the word faithful. But in this context, when Paul uses the word faithful, those are only secondary meanings of the word faithful. There is a primary meaning of the word faithful. Let me illustrate it to you. Remember after Jesus died and he rose from the grave, there was one disciple that doubted Jesus. You remember who he is? Thomas. Poor Thomas. One moment of doubt. And he's forever <laughs> going to be doubting Thomas. Man. But Jesus shows up to Thomas in the flesh after he's been risen. And here's a conversation Jesus has with Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Jesus is saying, Thomas, I'm literally physically 
in front of you, feel me, touch me, know that I'm here. And then Jesus said this amazing phrase. He says, don't be faithless, but believe. Don't be faithless, but believe. That word Jesus uses there for believe and over there in John is the same word that Paul uses for faithful in Ephesians. Jesus doesn't tell Thomas, don't be faithless and therefore be faithful. He says, don't be faithless, but believe. The opposite of faithlessness is believing. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. And in that moment, Thomas didn't prove his life of faithfulness. He simply believed. He trusted. He put his anchor down in the risen Jesus and he says, I believe in you. You are true. You are real. I believe. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are those who have not seen but yet believe. Jesus is saying the very definition of being faithful is believing is believing in the risen Jesus, is believing in who Christ is and what he has done. This is what it means to be faithful. It means to be full of faith in who Jesus is. Christians aren't just Christians because they attend church or because they're nice or have good enough morals. No, no, Christians are marked out, set apart to be Christians because they believe something about Jesus. They believe that he is God. He's a son of God who came in the flesh, the incarnate son of God, born of a virgin who lived a sinless life, who went to the cross in Golgotha and died for our sins, who was buried in the grave and three days rose from the grave and ascended and sat down at the right hand of God. We believe something. We have anchored our faith in someone. We become a saint the moment we believe. So it doesn't mean that saints don't struggle or doubt. What it means is that in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our doubting, we continue to believe. When we don't feel worthy enough, we continue to believe. On our worst day, we continue to believe and we feel guilty and ashamed and outside, perhaps of God's favor. No, 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 we continue to believe that God can never disassociate himself from us because we are in him. And now that faith in Jesus will lead to loyalty. It'll lead to steadfastness, endurance. These early Christians, they were told by their government and by those persecuting him, just recant Jesus, deny that Jesus is Lord and you can live. Claim that Caesar is Lord and you could live. You know what they did? They couldn't deny who they experienced. They couldn't deny who they had been faithful in, who they had trusted in, the one whom they had believed. So they would go to their graves, unable to deny the person of Jesus. And they would say, put me on the cross if you want. Put me in the grave, but I still believe in the person of Jesus Christ. He is Lord and none other. Paul says we are saints who are faithful. We are not faithful saints for Jesus Christ, but actually Paul says we are faithful saints in Jesus Christ. 
We are not saints because of our faithfulness for him. We are saints because of our faith in him. The last phrase of that verse is saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. In Jesus. We don't just have a mental assent about who he is. We don't just have a a philosophical agreement on who he is. No, no, we are inseparably united in Christ Jesus. We are faithful in Christ Jesus. He is the head. We are the body. We are one with him. We are united in this beautiful, mystical, spiritual union in Christ Jesus. We are with him now. In fact, this is what the New Testament teaches all across. Notice Romans chapter 6, verse 4, where Paul would say like this, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. The moment he was buried, you were buried. The moment he rose to new life, you were with him in the newness of life. I know it sounds odd, but it's true. Paul will go on to say in Romans 6, verse 8, now we died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. This is the glory of our witness with Jesus. In fact, later on in Ephesians 2, verse 6, he's going to say this. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. You may be living here in Dallas, in Carrollton, wherever you are, but right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, You are in Christ. And this is the power of your faith. This is the strength to our faithfulness. This is a secret to a life living for him. It is a life living in him. We are in Christ Jesus. Don't ever let the enemy convince you of a status that is less than in Christ. Because all of the blessings of God are already yours in Christ. All of his power is yours in Christ. All of his generosity, all of his grace, all of his love is flowing through you because you are in him and he is in you and that'll never change, Christian. God has joined you together with Christ for all eternity long. You are wrapped up in who Jesus is. Now Paul closes this first verse. We've made it through almost verse one on week one. (laughs) Got a long way to go. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. At Ephesus. This designation of this group of people being faithful saints in Christ Jesus is made even more remarkable and wondrous by the fact that they are people who live at Ephesus. In Ephesus. Ephesus at one point was the metropolitan city, the capital of Asia Minor. Hundreds of people came to Ephesus. It's modern-day Turkey on the coast of Turkey. And here, people from all around the world made a lot of money in Ephesus. Ephesus was incredibly economically prosperous, ethnically diverse, religiously plural, and socially immoral. It's one of the darkest immoral cities ever. You think today's bad. Ephesus was even worse. Ephesus had over 50 gods and 50 temples, and people could choose whichever one. The most common god or goddess was the goddess Artemis or Diana. And there was a massive temple constructed for the goddess Diana. 
Artemis, they believe that she descended from heaven itself. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Took 120 years to build. Four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. Massive. This drove the life and religion of Ephesus. And people worshiped God through immorality, through sensuality, through sorcery, and through witchcraft. It's how they believe they can get to God. Ephesus was not only home of temples, it was also the home of the largest libraries in the world, like this particular one that's reconstructed today in Ephesus. It was a center of intellect and books and parchments. But even underneath this very library was constructed a tunnel that will lead you from the library to the brothels, to liquor shops. And in Ephesus, there are even today, if you go to the ruins of Ephesus, there are signs etched in the center of the town giving you directions to the brothels. Because Ephesians believed that the way to God was either through superior knowledge or greater sensuality, through ecstatic experiences, through immorality. So they did things that were unimaginable, sinful. And this is Ephesus. To say there are saints in Ephesus is like saying there are polar bears in the Sahara Desert. <laughs> no one would have imagined 30 years before the writing of Ephesians that there would ever be saints. But in Acts 19, Paul comes to Ephesus. He comes with the good news of Jesus. People hear it and believe. They confess their sins. They repent of their life. In fact, even as Paul is preaching, they come and they begin to burn all these books of witchcraft and sorcery, confessing their sins, and a revival breaks out. And in just a moment, they believed in Jesus. Sinners in Ephesus become saints in Jesus. People who thought would never be saved, a city that they thought was always going to be marked by immorality and destruction, people began to be saints. It was as if in the midst of this desert of immorality and confusion and filth, there was an oasis of righteousness and hope and life in Jesus. There are saints in Ephesus. There are saints in North Dallas. There are saints in whichever town, city, country you are in right now because you are a saint. Marked out, set apart, called by God. You are a community which is to be an oasis of life righteousness and new standard and new kind of living because the work of Jesus has changed us from the inside. It boggles the minds of people around us. It seems too good to be true, but it is. And it's good because it is true. You are a saint in our Ephesus. The world needs to see you as a set-apart saint of Jesus who possesses the holiness of God not because of what we have done, but because of all that Jesus has done. And now the proof of that is the fact that we believe. And therefore we live out of this sainthood given to us by grace. Would you bow your heads with me today? You and I were set apart by the will of God, called by grace. Maybe there are some of you who have yet to come to Jesus Receive this grace. You want peace. You want a new life. You want forgiveness. And you're far from it. It's only found in God's grace. It's not found in your doing, in your achievement. It's received by faith through grace. Today, 
If that describes you, you can go from being a sinner to a saint. Even before you leave this very seat without moving a single bone in your body, everything can change. Everything can change in the living room, in your car, wherever you are. Everything can change in this moment. Because God sees you, he loves you, and grace is calling you home. Thank you, Father, for the grace that radically changed our lives and keeps changing us. Thank you that we are saints, not merely for Jesus, but in Jesus. Wrapped up, wedded, inseparable from Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we thank you that we are sanctified, we are empowered to live a new life, that something has happened, a new life has begun. Now we can help but live in view of this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. This week, we thank you that there are saints all across our nation, our city, proclaiming witness in Jesus Christ, boasting in no one but the cross, in no one but Jesus. May we be saints in our Ephesus. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Aren't you glad for this amazing letter? We're going to try to cover more ground next week. Join us next week. We're going to jump into election, predestination, redemption, all of that in just about 35 minutes. So we're going to do our best. If you're a guest today, we want you to know that at the end of every service, we have just a guest corner available for you right across this lobby. So if you've got questions here in the room, if you want to know more about our church, would you join us there? And also, community pastors are waiting for you. If you're wanting to be connected in a group, this is a season where we ramp up our groups again, and we will love for you to begin to do life with people. So if you're yet to be connected, to be known here at Bentry, would you join us at a small group this semester? We love you. God bless you. You are sent. Saints of Jesus Christ. Amen.